evidence and answers. We're all in pursuit of happiness. However, our culture has redefined happiness. Happiness is defined as experiencing self-fulfilling emotions of pleasure. However, this is not the classical definition of happiness, and a pursuit of this kind of happiness only leads to emptiness. What does it mean to live a happy life, and how can we attain it? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. The last time we were together, our host, Pat, began an interview with his guest, Dr. J.P. Moreland. In our broadcast today, they will conclude their discussion about how to attain true happiness and the way to a meaningful life. Yes, and that's a very important thing. When I talk to a lot of young people, they say, well, I'll think about it when I'm past 50. Yeah. But still, that is an important question that even young people need to address. Why is that? Well, the reason is that your view of whether there's an afterlife and what it's about, what separates me from experiencing the riches of heaven someday and trying to come to grips with that, that is not an add-on to a life that you're going to live independently of your views on that. It doesn't work that way. You will order your life according to what you think the purpose of life is. And if you think life doesn't have a purpose, then you will be inclined to go from one random experience to another, and you will end up being kind of a listless person that doesn't have any kind of purpose. And so for young people to understand that there is a knowable purpose in life and that it involves a living God that is the God of the Bible that you can know is real, and that this isn't going to stop. It's going to continue on and get better and better after we pass away. With that vision, then it impacts the way that you approach life now. And so I think it helps orient a teenager, let's say, or a middle schooler, to a certain way of seeing life that then a, a certain set of activities and practices follow from that. That's why it's so important. Yes, very well said. Now, in looking for the answer to whether God exists or fullness of meaning in life, you state that when it comes to epistemology, a fancy word for you know how we know or the theory mm -hmm. of knowledge, most believe that really it's limited to the five senses and science, or what we call yeah. the empirical method or scientism. You know, that's the only yeah. way we can really find true answers. Right. What's right. the flaw in this thinking or in this theory? Well, if you say the only way we can know reality is through the hard sciences, that statement itself can't be known because it can't be tested by the hard sciences. In fact, that assertion is an expression in the field of philosophy. And so it is self-refuting, like me saying that no sentence of English is longer than three words. Well, that sentence itself undermines the very thing I just asserted and saying that, you know, trust me, uh, the only thing you can know is what the hard sciences tell us is something that the hard sciences themselves can't demonstrate. So you end up with a self-refuting position. 
And the other problem is that science is based upon a whole bunch of assumptions that we know in ways that are quite independent from science. Let me give you an example. Science uses logic and mathematics in theorizing and testing things. But the laws of logic and the various truths of arithmetic and geometry and calculus are not known by any empirical method. They're known by what is called a priori a reflection. And that a priori means it's independent of the senses for its justification. Math and logic don't involve the senses. They involve the grasp of the mind. And so those are fields that are known in a strictly rational or intuitive sense using the mind, not the senses. And so science presupposes all of these truths that are known in an entirely different way. And mathematical laws aren't sense perceptible. You can't see numbers or laws of logic, but we're aware of them. And by the same token, unless God manifests his appearance visually, we don't see him, but there have been many times in my life I have been aware that he was right there in worship or in my own prayer room. And I've even had the Lord bring thoughts to me that were so clear I was 80% sure that they weren't from me but from him. And it turned out that I was right because what came to me ended up happening. But that wasn't through measuring anything. And so what's wrong with it is it takes a wonderful thing called science and it blows it up to a philosophical worldview that just can't be sustained. That's the problem with it. Yes. Now, you talk about that our meaning of our existence and comes mm. in connection with God who created all things. But we need to present evidence that God does in, indeed exist and that the theistic right. worldview makes the most sense. And, and in your book, you state that proving God's existence may be the wrong approach. A, a better approach is what you call the cumulative case inference to the best explanation yes, uh, yes. approach may be the best. So explain that approach for us. Yeah, thanks again for these questions. I don't like the word proof because I know exactly what proof means in logic or math. And it means that you have axioms and you have rules that allow you to form sentences in math and logic. And you go through a series of steps and you reach a conclusion that is entailed by your premises. Now, that's a proof. I don't know what proof means outside that. And so what I would rather use would be to say that we should believe, based on the preponderance of the evidence, and especially if it's beyond reasonable doubt. So if you take a jury trial, we don't use proof in there because we almost never know with 100% complete certainty that the person is innocent or guilty. But yet we still make knowledgeable decisions all the time. We know that the person is guilty, even though we admit that it's at least possible we're wrong. And so what we do in court is we build a cumulative case. Now what that means is that one line of evidence for a conviction may be good and another and a third, but if you have a whole bunch of them put together, like a, a string might not hold weight, but if you put a hundred strings together and bind them into a rope, 
Now, that'll hold weight. So a, a cumulative case involves uh, adding a whole set of evidence that work together to make the case stronger than any one piece of evidence by itself. It's cumulative in that way. And then you infer from a set of alternatives, and they might be the, the person was guilty or the person was innocent, and you take a look at the cumulative evidence for and against, and you infer the best explanation of everything that's been presented to you. And the same with God. I mean, you take a look at the evidence for and against God, and I've ended up concluding that it is beyond any reasonable doubt that there is a personal God that created the world, that fine-tuned it very delicately so that the different features of nature were just right for life to appear, and on it goes. So that's what a cumulative case is. And uh, that what you're looking for is confidence, not certainty. You don't have to be certain about something to know it. You can say, well, I know that God is real, but I admit that I might. I mean, I might be mistaken, and I still have questions, but at this point, I don't have any good reason to think I am mistaken. Yes, yeah, so in your book and in other writings, you talk about scientific mm -hmm. evidence, philosophical evidence, historical yes. evidence, and a whole range of evidence yes. to build your case that indeed the God described in the Bible exists and yes, Jesus yes, Christ, yes. who claimed to be God, made his case. Uh, absolutely. And I lay that out in a, I think, a accessible form in the God Question book. Now, I just had a brand new book come out about six weeks or so ago which adds an entirely new layer of evidence, and this is called A Simple Guide to Experience Miracles. And I have done research on five different kinds of miracles that are happening all over the world today. And I've carefully vetted 40 to 50 accounts of these five kinds of miracles that I would stake my reputation on. So one thing that you can do is going beyond that, you can talk about my changed life, and the things I've seen, uh, you know, specific answers to prayer, healings, and so on. So I think I wouldn't want to discount a person's experience of the supernatural presence of, of Jesus and even things that he does that just couldn't be coincidence as further evidence to support the truth of Christianity. Yeah, that's great. And for those of you that want a more a detailed explanation I highly recommend Dr. Morland's book, Scaling the Secular City, and other great apologists we've had on this show, our shows with Dr. Gary Habermas and Dr. Geisler and William Lane Craig and others. So with that, Dr. Morland, there's compelling evidence that God does indeed exist, that Jesus Christ yes. made his case through his miraculous life and resurrection, that he was who he said he was, the divine Son of God. Yes. Then what is the meaning of our existence, and, and how do we find Very, the answer? <laughs> Good question. Well, I see the last part of the book, I go into, well, what does this now mean to me? So what? Or what do I do to enter into this? And I just ask people, because a lot of times when they hear church or prayer or whatever, it just sounds utterly boring. And so I, I ask people to give me a fresh slate. And I say that there are three fundamental purposes for us in life, and I think they come in this order. And these are all found in Colossians chapter 3. And the first one is that we're here 
to learn to fall in love with God and to draw closer and more intimate to him as we get older and to find our fundamental sense of identity and belonging to him. And so the first purpose we're here is to learn to grow in our affection and our connectedness with God and learn to find our deepest sense of self in him and being in him. The second purpose then is that we're here to spend our lives cultivating a virtuous flourishing character that is listed in the scriptures it talks about becoming like jesus himself and those things called the fruit of the spirit and we're here to develop a tender heart that is surrounded by the kind of wise and good character that makes people trust us and look up to us not that we're doing it for that but we're just different and then the third reason we're here is that we're supposed to find our calling and our role in life, and that will include our jobs and our secular activities, if you want to call them that, and maybe our role in the church. So I I say, what are my gifts and what are my natural talents? And why was I put here? And what's my job? And then we find that, and we, we do that as best we can, knowing that it's done before the Lord himself primarily. And so if I sell insurance, I want to really do the best I can to love and serve my my clients. Because I'm not just doing it to make money. I'm doing that, of course. But I'm doing it to honor Jesus and love people. So uh, in the church, I may have a gift of uh, helps or a mercy, you know, or something. I need to cultivate that. So now those are the three fundamental purposes for why we're here. And then a whole bunch of things fall out of that, and it can expand all the way down to needing to take a, a vacation periodically to refresh myself, you know, and, and to get some rest and, and love myself enough to, to refurbish myself. Yeah, so in your book here, The God Question, I enjoyed the, the first section and, as you say, the, the last section of your book, because it's kind of unique in presentation of the yes. truth of Christianity. Yes, yeah, but, you know, in Chapter 8, I think you stated two important things. You said two essentials for getting good at life, which I think is pretty important here. What are those two essentials? What did you think they were? Before As I you read, read your book? No, after you read the book, oh. what did you take away believing that they were? Yeah, well, you stated getting good at self-denial, which is great, you know, yes. where Jesus said, die to yourself, take up your cross and follow me which is contrary to what you stated earlier where you know we're in a culture of narcissism that says everything right. is living for yourself and right. Jesus command here goes directly opposite of that die to yourself take up your cross and follow him absolutely no absolutely absolutely so the first place where you have to start is getting good at this thing called self denial now there's so much misunderstanding about this, that I have to be careful here, but I don't mean by flagellating yourself or trying to say, well, I'm really, I'm really a zero, you know, it's not me, it's the Lord, I don't matter. No, what I'm saying is that what you want to do is to become the kind of person who automatically is able to focus on other people and reach out and love them and care for them, and it becomes a habit. It's not that you can't 
engage in self-nurture. I mean, if you need a night off and need, want to watch a movie, then you better well do it. So this has nothing to do with, I mean, Jesus went away and he he rested. And that was self-nurture. He was taking care of himself. So this doesn't have anything to do with that. But what it means is that a happy person is somebody who orients his life to loving and serving others for Christ's sake and doesn't have to be the center of attention or be the focus of everything to be happy. And that is the number one thing that a person has got to start getting habituating. And that's the thing that I would strongly uh, recommend that someone take into consideration. And then the second one involves learning how to engage in what I call biblical self-talk. How do I talk to myself? And I tie that in to achieving a life uh, with the Holy Spirit's help of peace and joy, where this isn't fake, it's just natural, and that you're putting away anxiety and depression. And that's got to be the second way, namely, growing in a flourishing spirit-filled life, but there are certain practices you can do to make progress in that, and it has to do with habit formation. And one of them is that you learn how you speak, talk to yourself when you're not even aware of it, which is usually very negative. Gosh, I'm stupid. I will never measure up, or I just, I'm gaining weight, and I don't look good. I don't know. You know, people probably think I'm an idiot. I mean, there's all that stuff's going on, and we wonder why at the end of the day we're down, because we've been talking to ourselves because it's a habit to do that, but we're not even aware of it. And it's a conscious effort to start talking to yourself differently. And by saying things like, I'm going to be okay. God's got me. I'm going to do my best, and I don't have to be perfect. Now, you might not believe that, really. But if you want to believe it, then you're not faking it. Because if you want to believe it, then you got to start somewhere. And so you repeat truths to yourself that you would say deep down, you know, I I don't think I really believe this truth, but I want to get to where I really do, and so I'm going to start affirming it because I'm going to trust it's true. And if I form this habit, I will grow to really know it's true by this practice. And so that's the second thing I mentioned. Yes, and speaking to yourself truth, replacing false ideas with biblical truth, that's not positive thinking kind of stuff. Oh, no, no, no. It's truth, yeah. Yeah, Explain the difference. Yeah, well, I mean, positive thinking as it's widely used just means telling yourself anything that will make you feel good, whether it's true or not. Suppose that your kid isn't a very good athlete. Well, it's okay, you're not that bad, you're actually pretty good. No, you just need to tell your kid, you know, at this point, you aren't very good at this sport. It's okay, though. Maybe you should try something else, or perhaps music would be something of interest to you. But positive attitude is just, you know, this self-image movement, which drives me nuts, because it's based on false self-talk. <laughs> you pump somebody up. If I can up, believe it, I can achieve it. There you yeah, go, yeah. my friend. Exactly. Thanks for summarizing that. Whereas what I'm talking about is I start by saying, now, wait a minute, I just did something. And I'm a little embarrassed, but hold it. I am told that my debt was nailed on the cross, 
and that I am now completely outside the framework of having any judgment or condemnation from God. He will discipline me because he loves me, but there, he's, he's not angry at, at me. His anger has been satisfied. And so I need to begin to tell myself, dude, I'm loved. You know, God loves me in spite of myself. Uh, and once that becomes a habit, it, you kind of free, it frees you up. Yeah, and you talk that those are key essentials in defeating anxiety and depression, you know, is what you opened up your book with, which so much of us are suffering from. These are some of the keys in defeating what holds us down. Uh, That's absolutely right. Yeah, so, JP, this has been a fascinating interview. We could go on for another hour, of course, as always when we're talking with you. But uh, as we close, tell the person that's out there, the person that says, you know, I'm a Christian, but yes. I'm still feeling kind of depressed, and right, you know, this right. Christian life is getting a little boring. Yes, and, and yes. looking for something. Else. What's going on here? And, and give some words. Well, I would say, yeah. Well, it could be a lot of things, but relevant to our time here, I would say that you need a fresh perspective and a fresh start. You need to to kind of step back and try to find a new way to think about this whole thing, about the, this whole Christian thing. And what I'm trying to do in the God question is help with that. So you, you might want to get it and read through it and be open. Just You don't have to buy what I'm saying, but be open to it. And for all you know, you may end up with a different approach to the Christian life than you had before, and this new approach might be healthier and more effective as you grow. So you might want to give it a shot. That would be what I'd say. Yes, you've been listening to our interview with Dr. J.P. Moreland. Uh, it's come out with a great book here. Well, actually, it's a new edition of this book, yes. isn't it? Yeah. The God Question, An Invitation to a Life of Meaning. Just a fascinating book, especially for me, who's read a lot of apologetics books. You know, his first few chapters and his last few chapters were really unique. So we're recommending this book here, The God Question. Well, JP, if people want more information on the things that you've written and taught and more information on you, where can they go to get more information? Well, the best place to go, I think, would be Amazon.com. I have a website, but I don't do much with it, to be honest. I'm just too busy writing and doing other things. So if they wanted to go on my website, they might find a few things of interest, but Amazon would be the place to look and look for you know, for J.P. Moreland books, and you can see what I've done, and maybe something will strike you. Yes, and also tell us about the program there uh, at the university you teach at. Right. We have a program that is the largest MA program in the world in philosophy. And we train people to learn why they believe what they believe and face all the really hard questions because we want to send students out with courage and confidence and with a winsome spirit to do what you're doing. I mean, to mix it up in the culture, just what you're doing is what we want our students to do, to find their place, but but not do the holy huddle thing, to get out there and speak to the issues of the day and let people ask questions. <laughs> what a novel concept. So we're trying to train people to be able to do that. Yes, fantastic. You have been listening to our interview with Dr. J.P. Moreland. Uh, he teaches there one of the finest Christian uh, universities in the country there at Biola University. And so tremendous program out there and dr moreland is a tremendous author you highly recommend any book that he writes here and the one we were talking about here is the god question an invitation to a life of meaning so 
Dr. Moreland, thanks for being with us here on Evidence and Answers. My privilege, my friend. God bless you. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. So if you would like Pat to speak at your church, your Bible study, or even schedule an apologetics conference at your church or location, give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Use our search engine for available resources, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org and you may do so right there online. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zufran. Yeah.